When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the words of Andy Williams, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I'm not singing it. But do we really know why we celebrate Christmas? Do our modern day traditions of Santa, trees and TV specials blind us from the real history of the holidays? This episode is definitely NSFK, not safe for kids, as we answer, what is the history of Christmas in America? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Returning from the faculty this week is Thomas Smith, Professor of American Literature and Culture and Deputy Director of Area Studies at the University of East Anglia. His latest book, The Last Gift, The Christmas Stories of Mary E. Wilkins Freeman, is available now and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Hello again, Tom. Hi, Liam. It's great to be back. As always, it's a pleasure. And our special guest today tells the fascinating stories behind our favourite holidays traditions through his popular podcast, Christmas Past. Uh, The podcast, one of the longest running of its kind, delivers holiday cheer with a storytelling style inspired by a public radio. Uh, A huge welcome to the show, Brian Earl. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Couldn't really do a podcast episode about Christmas without having you on. And before we dive into the history of Christmas, uh, I do want to ask, uh, your podcast is is great and obviously you put a lot of work into it. Does that kind of ruin Christmas for you? You know, that was a concern going into all of this because I start working on my episodes sometime around the summer, late fall. And so that means the the Christmas season for me is extended for several months. By the time Christmas rolls around, there's a, a chance that I would be sick of it by then. But the truth is, it's it's been the exact opposite effect because I've um, gotten to an age where I've seen many Christmases at this point and they all started seem, seeming the same. And I wanted a way to kind of think about Christmas where curiosity and fascination were front and center. You mentioned Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year and it certainly is that, but it's also just the most fascinating. There is no other cultural phenomenon whereby for about a month out of the year, we change so much about the way that we act and the way that we dress and the foods that we eat and what the insides of our houses look like and what the world looks like and what we hear when we go to the store and just what we see in our environment. We literally change the world for like a month. And that is endlessly fascinating. So it has injected new life into my experience of Christmas. And, you know, we'll get into this, of course, but the Christmas we celebrate, and I'm using that description deliberately. There is no Christmas. There is the version of Christmas we celebrate now is this patchwork collection. It's a curated collection of traditions from different parts of history, from different parts of the world. It is not the complete collection, like like not even close. Uh, It's just the one that we've all agreed to recognize as Christmas now. And for each and every one of those little constituent parts, there's a story. There's a story to be told. Uh, So very often, you know, we celebrate Christmas where 
continuing these generations old narratives without even being aware of the starting chapters to them. And that's what Christmas Past was all about. I just wanted to start turning over stones and seeing what I found. Uh, and luckily, it has not ruined Christmas for me. Not yet. Eight years into it. And it's it's only made things better. Yeah, and it, it really is a great, a great podcast. So I'd recommend everyone uh, check it out. But you mentioned, you know, Christmas now has kind of been man-made to an extent. It's sort of, it is what we've what we've turned it into. When did it stop being about religion? Because fundamentally, it's a religious holiday, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that is a really good question, Liam, and I think it's a question that people have posed pretty much you know, regularly at regular intervals ever since the first Christmas, because the relationship of religion to Christmas seems, on the surface of things, a pretty straightforward one. This is a, a holiday on some level, which is, you know, related to the birth of Jesus. But the degree to which religion has been front and centre in this celebration has, has waxed and waned enormously over the years. I mean, if we think about, um, you know, the 17th century, which is, in a sense, where we might jump in for American Christmases, we think about the Puritan moment, we think about Puritan colonists. I mean, they they do not like Christmas, right? They do not celebrate Christmas. And the the Puritan prejudice against Christmas for being, you know, far too Catholic seeming, you know, for, for there being no biblical textual relationship to um, to Christmas, um, beyond the gospel stories, obviously, but no fixed date at which you are meant to celebrate the birth of Jesus. That anti-Puritan, that Puritan anti-Christmas prejudice really lingers for a long time. Um, in the American context, I mean, that, that of course happens over here, you know, after the English Civil War uh, for a while. But that really lingers longer in parts of America. So well into the 19th century, you know, the truly religious are still very suspicious about Christmas as a holiday, right? It is not, it is not a holiday that is observed by, by devoutly religious people. And it's not until the late 19th century that religious Americans start to come to terms with it for you know, various cultural reasons. So, yes, yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question, but it's one that there is there is no easy answer to because um, the degree to which Christmas is understood to be a, an important religious festival really does um, wax and wane over the over the centuries. And, and that's one of the fascinating things about it, I think. So, so what, where was the turning point then? Because, you know, we're specifically an American history podcast. So let's look at that sort of Americanization of Christmas that's happened over the years. You know, is, is there a moment that it really started to, to become what it is today? My understanding would be that it, mostly the Civil War is the turning point, uh, because that's when you start to see things like after the Civil War is when American homes started to have Christmas trees. Uh, and, and even then, that was a slow buildup. Even as late as the early 20th century. And if you were in an urban area, your house probably didn't have a Christmas tree. There'd probably be one in the town square. Uh, Christmas trees themselves are something that are ubiquitous. And I never grew up without one. But my great, great grandparents were probably among the first generation of, of um, Americans where a Christmas tree would have been common in the home. Around the you know the 19th century, of course, also in England is the Victorian era. Uh, we're borrowing a lot of that because we're getting a lot of immigration from uh, England and, and we're melding all of these European Christmas traditions that are coming to America. Uh, things like wreaths, things like Christmas trees, a lot of the British traditions. We're 
beginning this sort of melding and rapid iteration process that also happens to coincide with a rise of industrialization, commercialization. More of us are, prior to the Civil War, I think it was something like one in out of every three Americans was a farmer. And then as we became more industrial and started moving to cities and we're buying more things from shops and things like that, uh, we're just starting to see our consumer culture change. And of course, all that is translating into Christmas as well. So I, I think Brian's, Brian's really right there. <clears throat> and I think w- one of the interesting things that about it, as Brian said there, is that it really is a, a transatlantic collaboration. I think that's one, of the, that's one of the fundamental things about it, that we might want to think of a separate British Christmas tradition or a separate American tradition. We might think about, oh, has America Americanized British Christmas celebrations over the last you know, few decades? But, but really, it's a, it's, a, it's a transatlantic conversation right from the start. And, um, you know, Britain imports things from Germany. It also imports, for example, in the early 19th century, Washington Irving's stories about um, old Christmases in Britain, um, which then go back into America. Dickens is a big fan of those. And of course, Christmas Carol crosses the Atlantic. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a collaboration. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about it. It's, you, you can't really separate the streams without you know without doing damage to uh, to that sense of how it develops in this organic and iterative way to use Brian's nice term there hmm. I think um you know in the, the, the 20th century particularly you know as, a, as an outsider non-american um I feel like the, the US have been sort of the flag bearers for consumerism um, and for, for capitalism and um, I think that's where it feels like America has become quite inextricably linked with what's become very modern themes around Christmas, uh, you know, very materialistic behaviours around Christmas. But I guess Brian, probably having more first-hand experience than, than either myself or Tom, what makes an American Christmas American? Well, I think, you know, you're right that we're kind of the standard bearers of, of capitalism, but we're also probably the culture that is wielding the most influence over what Christmas is now. I mean, previously that might've been, you know, England uh, and and maybe that moment will come back again, or maybe it'll be somebody else. But since I'd say the early 20th century, it's been America that's really left the most impression on Christmas. And that's because the, the notion of Santa Claus is not an American invention, but at the same time, it sort of is. The version of Santa Claus we recognize today is so much of the culture of American Christmas. And by culture, I mean the, just the stuff that gets aerosolized, the things that you just kind of can't avoid about Christmas as you're just walking down the street or driving in your car or going into the store. And so that's the music that came out of the World War II era, the Bing Crosby and Perry Como and all of that kind of stuff uh, that was, you know, uniquely American. It's it's based on popular jazz, which is an American song form. Uh, and then, of course, you, you, you mentioned the, the consumerism. The Christmas season, as we recognize it today, Previously, remember, the Christmas season began on Christmas. That's the 12 days of Christmas between Christmas and the Feast of the Epiphany. And the season leading up to that was Advent. Nowadays, the Christmas season is the season between Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. And that is largely an invention by large retailers like Macy's in New York City and Wanamaker's in Philadelphia wanting to extend the shopping season. So Macy's very famously would have Santa Claus come at the end of its annual Thanksgiving Day parade and officially by decree say, "Okay, the Christmas season has now begun. So. The American Christmas is very, very consumer based, uh, but we've also just created a lot of our own culture, um, largely through the form of media, a lot of music and movies. And nowadays we pump out, I'd say, far too many of those movies, those Hallmark movies. They literally put out 
more than you could even consume if you watched one every day during the Christmas season. I think it's being taken to uh, an extreme. But yeah, I, I my Christmases growing up were very much about the toys and Santa Claus. I, I don't know how different that is from a typical English Christmas, but those are, yeah. I, I think what's really interesting, uh, just picking up on that, is Liam, you, the, the way that you kind of think about consumerism and Christmas being uh, maybe a 20th century phenomenon. You look in the 1840s, 1850s, already people are complaining that Christmas has become over-commercialised, has, be, has become far too much about the presents. Um, so Harriet Beecher Stowe, famous, famously the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, she writes a Christmas story in 1850. And it begins with, with, uh, with one of the characters lamenting that they've got to buy Christmas presents for everybody and she doesn't know what to buy them and there's more and more presents each year. And even, even you get someone like Ralph Waldo Emerson, the, um, the great kind of philosopher, transcendentalist. Uh, there's a passage in one of his essays where he's like, I really find it difficult to think of what to buy people <laughs> when it's Christmas time. So, um, so yeah, so, 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 so I, I think we're always thinking that Christmas has become too commercialised. That is one of the hallmarks of what we think of as a modern Christmas celebration. Um, so that's one thing. And I think um, just picking up as well when Brian was talking about the importance of music and, and particular kinds of pop music to Christmas, I think that's a really excellent point. And that is really, I think, one of the distinctive things about America is, of course, you know, if you think about White Christmas, probably the definitive Christmas song in many ways, written by a Jewish songwriter. And that brings up a really other interesting issues around the question of faith and national identity and um, the way in which Christmas mediates that. Uh, so, so I think that's a, that's a really good example about something that really is distinctively American, perhaps, about um, about the way in which the world celebrates Christmas through that kind of pop product. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And uh, Brian, I think you you should thank your lucky stars that, that you have Thanksgiving and, and Halloween because... In England, we don't celebrate that, and Christmas starts in what, September sometimes. Shops are filled with mince pies already. We're recording this at the end of September. There's mince pies and there's Christmas presents on the shelves. So, uh, yeah, it starts very early over here. It does start early here, too. We have a phenomenon that I, for, I always forget the pronunciation, but it's some sort of um, portmanteau of Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, like thanks Halloween, Christmas. Um, and you see memes online where people take a photo at Walmart and, you know, like literally on the same end cap or three holidays worth of, of decorations. I was at a store with my son last weekend and I saw Christmas decorations out already. So it's I don't know if that's a uniquely British thing, but mm. but you're right that we have to get through Thanksgiving and Halloween first over here. Just to prove that I walk the walk, I, I did buy some Christmas decorations today. So, <laughs> so, so I am partly responsible for the, for the reason that they put these things out. But, but I, I think that one, one interesting thing is there is that there is a lot about British Christmas that is still weirdly distinctive and, and is distinct from American Christmas. And I think that, you know, Twitter seems to discover this every year still, that, for example, you know, America doesn't have Christmas crackers. America doesn't really have Boxing Day, I believe. Brian, you'll correct me on any of these. America doesn't really have mince pies. No. America doesn't have Christmas pudding. So there, and America doesn't have pantomime, for example, unless probably in small pockets. So 
it's interesting in Philadelphia. Uh huh. So it's interesting that there are still ways in which our Christmases diverge. I think, and that's something that I've cracked in on on the podcast a lot for a long time because the majority of the American Christmas is really imported from the British Christmas with, you know, a little bit of an assist from Germany or, uh, you know, other European cultures, uh, Sweden. But why is it that we never adopted the the Christmas cracker? I mean, in my house, we have Christmas crackers. I make a pudding every year. It's not totally lost on us, but for some reason, they never had their moment here. And you, you touched on, um, you know, music and, and movies and, and um, the popularization of Christmas through through cultural mediums like that. Do you think there's an element of life imitating art? Do you think you know, how many of these traditions are sort of picked up on or created by popular culture and then they just become mainstream? I'm trying to think of a example of a kind of wholly made up tradition. And in America, one that probably comes pretty close is the, the ugly Christmas sweater, or I guess the, the Christmas jumper, uh, and the elf on the shelf. I mean, these are things from the last decade or two that someone basically said, I'm going to start a Christmas tradition. Uh, and and it stuck. I mean, ugly sweaters, I I think they're kind of on the decline, I hope. <laughs> I was never the biggest fan of those. Uh, and the elf on the shelf, now that I'm a dad to a three-year-old, I'm firmly committed there will not be one of those in, in our house. But <laughs> those things seem to have quite a bit of staying power. And it's interesting because you think of Christmas traditions like, you know, we can get a little ambiguous with our definition of a, a Christmas tradition is listening to white Christmas, a Christmas tradition. In other words, like, is that song a tradition? And if so, it's interesting because that song is the intellectual property of a record company. Mm -hmm. And the elf on the shelf is this product owned by one family. And Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is, you know, owned by a television network. Uh, You know, we're in a strange time now where Christmas traditions are things people own Mm -hmm. uh, and that you have to celebrate it through, uh, I guess, the, 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 the ways that you're allowed to celebrate them. Yeah, Christmas is intellectual property. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you think that we we think about stuff like Elf on Elf on the Shelf and um, the other example that you gave uh, being like a modern tradition, and we we kind of diminish them a bit because we remember them being started in our lifetime. But isn't that how every tradition starts? Exactly, uh, and it's also interesting because. Some traditions come and go within a lifetime. Uh, the aluminum Christmas tree was something that you saw in America. Uh, that was something that got it got going around the 1950s and was gone by the 1960s. And one of the common themes on, on Christmas past is we're constantly making history. Every tradition came into being and stuck around or died out. And there's a story around it. And that if we're living through history, we're creating traditions now. And I really believe... The, the ugly sweater and the elf on the shelf may come and go. I think probably the lasting change that we're making that I think we're going to see carry through to the next generation is manipulating the length of the Christmas season. You know, again, it used to be the 12 days that started on Christmas and then it was we're kind of pulling back and it just keeps pulling back earlier and earlier. And a topic that I, I explore this season is Boxing Day. You would think we'd want another day on the tail end of that here in America. Why not? Especially now that I understand what Brits do on Boxing Day, where, you know, you just watch a lot of sports and eat a lot of food. And it's like, that sounds very American to me. Uh, It's a wonder that we have not codified that into uh, American Christmas culture yet. I mean, it's it's really lovely looking at 19th century literature, magazines, (laughs) short stories from that period, because you can see exactly that process taking place um, year on year. I think one of the examples I really like is in um, Mariah Susanna Cummins' big best-selling novel from 1854 called The Lamplighter. 
uh, and there's a nice Christmas section in that book. And you have two two characters who are children at the time talking to each other about Santa Claus, uh, because one of them has never heard of Santa Claus, and one of them has just learnt about Santa Claus from a book and is teaching their friend about Santa Claus. So you can you can literally see it being passed from person to person there. And of course, all the people who are reading Cummins' best-selling book are also reading about Santa Claus in that way. So you, you can truly see these Christmas things going viral, if you like, in the mid-19th century onwards, as, as they pass from one piece of popular culture to another. So, so they were absolutely doing the same thing in the 19th century. And I was actually just wondering, how am I going to pivot to my next question? But you've segued perfectly for me, Tom. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just going to throw this one out there. Is Santa Claus American? I would say yes. <laughs> yes, the version, <laughs> the version of him that we we recognize today, and that's true for a couple of reasons. And even if you look at the way Santa Claus was understood a few generations ago, um, it would be different from what we have now, because the the if you picture Santa Claus, you're going to picture uh, just uh, basically an old man, but he's about six feet. He's overweight. He has a white beard and all of that. But that's the image that we've all agreed upon in the last couple of generations. You know, if you think back to a visit from St. Nicholas, he can fit down a chimney. He's a right jolly old elf. He has a little round, but everything about him is small. He rides a miniature sleigh. Uh, So we've gone through a lot of iterations where he's maybe not fully human. He has pointy ears. He's an elf. It wasn't until we get to about the 1930s where Coca-Cola had a graphic artist named Haddon Sunblom who every year would create a painting of Santa Claus. And just by the sheer marketing reach, that really helped to sort of normalize and socialize this one image of Santa Claus. And what that means, let's really think about this for a second, that that was about 90 years ago. So there are people alive today who are older than your notion of what Santa Claus, what or who he is. Previously, he didn't even come on Christmas Eve. And that was one of the most surprising things I've learned doing the podcast. In Washington Irving's uh, writings, he came on New Year's Eve and he rode a wagon pulled by a horse, not a sleigh pulled by eight reindeer. All of that stuff, all of the things that we think we understand about Santa Claus, that he lives in the North Pole, that he lives with elves, is just a couple generations old, three, four, five generations old at most, and it's mostly from American influence. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Am, am I right in thinking as well that the Santa, um, or the, whatever the version of Santa was before the one we, we know today, um, he, he wasn't red? Uh, am I right in thinking that was a Coca-Cola um, thing as well? Yes, I mean, if you go back to um, the night before Christmas, as, as Brian mentioned, um, I think he's he's brown and dressed in furs in that, far more kind of wild man of the woodsy. And he does go through various iterations until red is settled. Um, the, the degree to which Coca-Cola is responsible for the redness, I think, is is, is slightly debated. I, I'm, never, I'm never that fond of being too dogmatic about these things because they do kind of mutate and, and spread in, in wild ways. Uh, and again, you know, if you look at the mid 1850s, it's, it's brilliant to see people just kind of freestyling um, Santa Claus 
<laughs> powers or or attributes um, you know just making it up as they go along uh, and and some of that sticks and some of it doesn't and 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 the modern santa claus that we have is the the end result and i would definitely put in a word for the illustrator thomas nast in the middle of the 19th century who's whose father christmas i think probably yeah I, I think he looks pretty father christmasy at that point although i have of course i just did the slippage i i went into father christmas and the, and i think one of the interesting questions is you know the difference between Santa Claus and Father Christmas because you know I definitely grew up with Father Christmas, but my my children will probably say Santa Claus more than Father Christmas these days, uh, depending on the uh, depending on their mood. But I don't think that's a clear cut one either. It wasn't like we had Father Christmas in Britain and then Santa Claus got imported. There are figures from definitely the 17th century who are called Old Father Christmas, who are a kind of spirit of the season, more like a kind of old man winter figure. But they're not really the kind of jolly gift bringers that, that we think about when we think about Santa. So I think you could probably say that Father Christmas is perhaps a kind of British response to Santa Claus as much as it is a, a, a figure who predates Santa Claus. So, you know, they're an interesting tension there, I think, probably. Do you think that, and uh, this is, uh, I'm uh, thinking off the cuff here, that with with the way that traditions are created and the way that, that our image and perception of certain things around Christmas are sort of molded through generations do you think that the image of Santa Claus as this you know fundamentally masculine character is going to change now that we're we're in a time when you know issues around gender fluidity and, and identity and and I hate the word but kind of wokeness is is, is you know part of the conversation now do you think Santa or the, the idea of him will become a bit more androgynous? <laughs> the idea of Santa Claus will change. I mean, there's no question about that. That is the, the one thing that we can rely on. It, it's not going to be the same five generations from now that it is today. Is it going to change along that particular axis? I, I suppose I can't say. It, it, it seems likely that that might wield its influence. But again, like you look at drawings of him from even a few generations ago. And, you know, to Tom's point, he looks a little more old man winterish. He looks a little maybe not fully human. And then even you know the color of what he wears. One of the things there's a poem that came out roughly the same time as a visit from St. Nicholas called The Children's Friend. And a visit from St. Nicholas was first published in a newspaper. It wasn't illustrated until much later, but The Children's Friend was. And in that he's wearing green. And he's riding a sleigh pulled by one reindeer, not eight. Like, we're always adding our little touches to the Santa Claus legend as we go through time. It's kind of hard to see it in the moment. It's hard to see what you're actually doing from one generation to the other because you're so close to it. It's You can't really see the forest for the trees. It's only in retrospect that we'll look back and say, oh, yeah, like that's that's around the time that we were doing this with the Santa legend. And I'm trying to think even from from when I was younger to what I see now, like, you know, I had a, a, a children's book where you know, Mrs. Claus was just the traditional housewife. You know, she wore an apron and she mostly made cookies, whereas I think now we're seeing her as being a little bit more, you know, like the CEO of the North Pole or more of a power figure taking a bit more of a front seat. I, I think we're seeing, you know, the, the Santa Claus legend extends beyond Santa Claus himself. Uh, so I think we're, we're seeing changes in a lot of ways around the whole thing. I'd also add that um, Santa Claus has been quite a kind of malleable figure for different groups uh, already. Um, so, as you said, I've just edited a collection of Mary Wilkins Freeman's Christmas stories. And there are plenty of those stories where you can see that she's playing with the idea of Father Christmas. And many of her female protagonists within her stories take on a kind of Father Christmas Santa Claus role 
within those sketches, um, often in quite interesting ways. Often they seem to be working in opposition to a kind of commercialized mainstream Santa Claus figure. Um, so there's one great story where um, where the protagonist gets so cross with um, the kind of needless fripperies of Christmas gift giving, the kind of useless gifts that, that she keeps getting given, that she kind of, she packs up her sleigh and it feels very much like this is a kind of negative image of Santa. She packs up her sleigh and she goes round to all of her neighbours to give them the presents back that they've given her, <laughs> which is which is very kind of bracing to read now because uh, she does it very bluntly. So almost like a kind of anti-Santa. And just, just finishing editing a, a special journal article about um, with, with lots of different Christmas essays in it. Uh, and one of the contributors has written about the tradition of black Santa Claus. And, you know, there's a very, very rich, rich tradition of, of Santa Claus being depicted as black in various contexts and for different purposes. So, you know, maybe Santa Claus isn't as stable as as, as, as we might think anyway. And, and certainly people are, have, have often not been shy with playing with that that image. Yeah. Anti-Santa. I love that term. Uh... <laughs> Before we uh, we sort of wrap up our, our discussion, I'm keen to just understand what what does Christmas look like in your homes, uh, Tom? First, um, I guess probably quite quite maximal in some senses. <laughs> um, we uh, we do have more than one Christmas tree, uh, and let's say we did we did invest in in a pair of freestanding nutcrackers, nutcracker soldiers to uh, to guard our front door last year. So um, so so uh, you know we we do make an effort, I have to say. And um, and and like Brian, having spent a lot of time working with Christmas um, over the last few years, it hasn't it hasn't dulled my uh, my affection for the season. So um, so I'm happy for it to to start early and uh, and carry on. Well, it's really changed for me in the recent years uh, since I've had a son. And part of the reason is that I would normally put up the Christmas tree on Halloween. Literally, I've done that in years past. But my son's birthday is in early. November, so I'm not allowed to do anything until after that. And then at that point, I figure, well, why don't we just do what everyone else does and wait until Thanksgiving is come and gone? But it's very child-centric now. He's at an age where he can start to understand. And we've created our little family tradition. I totally made this up off the top of my head. The, the Christmas goose comes every night and leaves a Christmas cracker. I make them down in, in my office at night, uh, just little little custom toys for him and a note from the Christmas goose. So every morning he has a little something special. Uh, and then otherwise pretty typical. Once he goes to bed, um, we watch Christmas movies and have our, our tree and our lights and all that. So uh, I think when people hear that I do the Christmas podcast, they think I'm one of those guys with a hundred inflatable ornaments out in the front yard. And that's one way to express, express your Christmas spirit, but it's not the way that I do it. Christmas goose is good. Yeah. I, I love Christmas goose. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to start the one myself. Uh, but before, before we go uh, in a, uh, the next episode of the podcast, we're actually going to be talking about Christmas movies and I'm going to ask everyone this question again, um, but a quick yes or no, because I have to ask. Is Die Hard a Christmas film? I am fully unqualified to answer that question because I've never seen Die Hard. That's a, that's a good excuse. My understanding is the consensus is yes, but I, I wouldn't know. I Talking about this special issue of this journal that I edit that is, is going to be dedicated to Christmas, I am actually about to publish an article which goes into this very topic and is about whether or not Die Hard should be understood as a Christmas movie. So, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll, let, I'll let everyone read that, and uh, that will give them a definitive read either way.
This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our guests this week, Tom Smith, as always, and Brian Earle. Go check out his podcast right now. The link is in the show notes. And of course, if you enjoy what we do, please leave us a rating and review our show. It helps other people discover us, which is awesome. Next week, I'm joined again by Tom Smith and the returning John Mitchell as we figure out how do you make a Hollywood Christmas movie?